You are listening to the Lima Community Church Podcast. The following was recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. The words of Jesus are many, and in this limited series, it would be impossible for us to paint a complete picture of the word capital W, the word of God, who was the son of God who came to us. I think it's John's gospel that says if all of the things that Jesus said and did were to be written down, not even the books in the entire world could contain them. Is that right? And fill all the libraries. And that's the truth. Uh, but in this, in this series, we are attempting to look at things that Jesus said that maybe were difficult or that are confusing Not that we can nail Jesus down as if we can somehow own or have a monopoly on the truth, but that we might be transformed by Jesus's word. And I know that I've shared my testimony here before, but in thinking about the words of Jesus this week, I was thinking about how Jesus's words have changed and transformed my own life. And for some of you, this is going to be a repeat, but I... I want to share this with you again. I I grew up in the church. I was a person that has always been a part of the church in some capacity in my life. And for a majority of my life, a majority of my friendships have been people within the church. So I, by virtue of all these things, am someone that you would consider very religious. Does that make sense? Any religious people out there? I feel like the religious people always get thrown under the bus, but I'm a religious person in that sense, you know? My my sense of being in the world has been very religious from the time that I was very young. And so when I graduated from college, I did what many religious people, when I graduated from high school, I did what many religious people do. I went to a religious college. I went to Olivet Nazarene University and I met a lovely religious girl there named Kate. She's the same one that I'm still with. We We got married. We got married and, and I just started checking off the boxes of all the good things that good little religious boys are supposed to do. I got a degree, I got another degree, I got married, I got a good religious job. <clears throat> and about the age of 22, 23, I remember one day I was in my house, or the, this little apartment that Kate and I had together and I was miserable I was just miserable. I wasn't happy. I wasn't content. And I remember doing what most religious people do when they're miserable. I had a pity party. And I cried out to God. I said, God, you know, I'm trying to do all the things right that you called me to do in my life. But the thing is, I'm kind of miserable. I didn't think it was supposed to be like this. I feel kind of purposeless. I feel kind of empty. I don't really like who I'm becoming, but I'm really religious. (laughs) So I'm talking to you of all things, you know? And I, I, you know, being the religious person that I am, what do you think was sitting on the table there in my living room? A Bible was, right? So I, I, I pick up the Bible. I don't know necessarily why I picked up the Bible. I don't know what I was expecting out of the Bible, but I picked up the Bible and my Bible fell open to Hebrews chapter one. Now, I don't suggest 
any of you doing as a regular practice, just waking up every day and opening the Bible. Odds are you're gonna find some pretty weird stuff because there's some pretty weird stuff in this thousand pages or more book here. But on this particular day, when I was not in the mood to pursue any sort of devotions, I just opened the Bible and it fell open to Hebrews 1. And this is what I read, okay? This is how the writer of Hebrews opens his epistle. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. That makes sense. That's what happened in the past. I'm thinking to myself at this point, well, Lord, I, you know, I know that. It'd be good to get something for right now, you know? Well, then verse two, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. I read that and I stopped. And I don't know that I heard a voice, but I felt a presence and I felt this convicting thought. You're very religious, but you don't know Jesus. And if you want to know me, you're going to have to get to know Jesus. And so this religious boy who grew up Bible quizzing, Bible college, essentially education, you know, I started reading the gospels and reading them in kind of a self-critical way, expecting to find things that maybe I hadn't found before. And that's ex actually exactly what happened. As I started reading the words of Jesus more critically, I started realizing that Je Jesus was criticizing people like me, religious people, and believe it or not, my, about a year or so into my marriage, whenever this crisis was, I was really not very satisfied with my marriage. Kate's a lovely person, you know? But I thought that when I got married, what was gonna happen is that all of my, you know, all the emotional needs, uh, all of my, you know, lack of my self-understanding or whatever I lacked in, it would be fulfilled in my wife. And what I found out, is that not, that's not what happens in marriage, right? But then I started reading the gospels and I realized, you know, Jesus doesn't call his followers to be concerned about their own affairs as much as the affairs of others. Furthermore, if you read the companion to the gospels, Paul's work, Paul tells husbands to give themselves up for their wives as Christ gave himself on the cross for the church. You know what I'm saying? I mean, believe it or not, when I realized that the paradigm for marriage was actually that I was to be like Jesus, to have a towel and a basin and to serve my wife, it actually changed my marriage. This isn't a sermon on marriage today, but married people, you should consider it. Instead of thinking about changing them, why don't you think about changing you, you know? Maybe God's got work to do on you. And honestly, reading the gospels, it, it changed my worldview, it changed my life. And this is actually why I'm in ministry still today is because I believe that there, although there is an institutionalized version of Christianity, there is this real word of God that, that is sharper than any double-edged sword that can pierce our lives and transform us. And I, I, my prayer for, for us at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in 2021 is that we would allow God's word to pierce our hearts and transform us. Jesus always asked that question from Isaiah. He always quoted Isaiah, that line, 
You'll have ears to hear, but be never hearing, eyes to see, but be never perceiving. I pray that God would give us divine insight that we might be able to see, be able to hear in these days. My story today is from Matthew chapter 12. If you will open your Bible with me, go, go with me there. We're gonna read a strange story today. And I must, I must confess to you, I usually, when preaching, have a question that you can write down, you know, or points, you know, or I'll tell you this is sermon number one or sermon number two or something like that, because that's like, that's good pedagogy. That's good teaching. That's effective communication. I don't have that today. We're just reading this story and we're just gonna walk through it. We're gonna see what happens. I mean, it's not random. I have some thoughts. <laughs> just in collecting them, there was nothing witty that came to me necessarily, you know? Or someone's like, oh, I'm gonna say this. And they're gonna be like, oh, that was smart, you know? It's none of that. It's just, this, we're just reading this, this kind of weird story in Matthew chapter 12. So turn your Bibles with me. You can read it on the screen if you don't have one with you. Then they brought to him a demoniac. That's a person who was possessed by demons. They're bringing this person to Jesus. So they brought to him a demoniac who was blind and mute. I mean, three strikes and you're out. Possessed by demons, can't see, can't talk. Bad situation here, okay? They brought to him a demoniac who was blind and mute and he cured him. That's what, that's what Jesus did. He cured him so that the one who had been mute could speak and see. All the crowds were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, ah, it's only Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Um, it's only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons, that this fellow casts out the demons. He knew what they were thinking and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your exorcists cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man? Then indeed the house can be plundered. Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, people will be, for, well, people will be forgiven for every sin and blasphemy, but blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person brings good things out of the good treasure and the evil person brings evil things out of an evil treasure. I tell you on the day of judgment, you will have to give an account for every careless word you utter. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. 
In this story, we find Jesus confronted with a man that people understood to be possessed by demons. And either these demons had made him blind and mute, or these are just different isolated conditions that he has all at one time. We don't really know, but the fact of the matter is he has three simultaneous problems and Jesus heals all three problems simultaneously, which is really quite an amazing miracle. I mean, this is a, it's a pretty big one. This is, a, this is an amazing thing. It's a shame, the miracle only gets one verse in the text. Everything else is the commentary after it. So I just wanna kind of like lift it up, maybe give a shout out to the Lord. That was a, that was a pretty good one, you know. Throughout the gospels, I, I think that it's important for us to recognize that exorcism, the driving out of demons from individuals is one of the most significant signs, possibly the most significant sign that Jesus has the power over dom the dominion of darkness in this world. If you read Mark's gospel, I mean, he's casting out demons in every other page. I mean, it is just everywhere. And that's, and he comes proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is here. And because the kingdom of heaven is here, the kingdom of darkness must be demolished. Now in the ancient world, people attributed, attributed personal maladies, sicknesses and mental illnesses to demonic forces much more readily than you and I do today. So someone who had a case of bipolar or schizophrenia or many other conditions found in our DSM-5, DSM-5, right? Yeah. It would be designated by the folks of ancient times as a demonic condition as someone having demons. Now, I don't wanna make little of, of the biblical text or say that these people are not understanding the world correctly. This doesn't take away from Jesus's ministry. It's just to say that many of the personal and social issues that Jesus, that Jesus addressed as spiritual and communal issues, we now have medication and prescriptions for. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I just am just saying we should at least recognize we live in a different world in that case. All right, and the Bible may have something to offer us uh, if, we would, if we would allow it to in that regard. But I'm not a physician, I'm gonna stay in my lane. Um, I'm not suggesting that we're healthier as a society either now than they were then, okay? I'm just saying exorcism in Jesus's day was a much bigger business than it is today, all right? When people have the issues that I named previously, they don't come to my office. They're like, what's he gonna do? He does religion. You know, this guy does spiritual stuff. We gotta go get the actual, the actual problems taken care of, you know? So, but these people, they would bring, they would bring these individuals to, to healers, to religious folk. So Jesus heals this guy who's understood to be filled with demons. And after he heals him, he's accused himself of having a demon. Beelzebul to be specific is the demon that he's accused of being possessed by. Have you ever heard of this demon? Have you ever wondered who is this? What's, this? what's this name all about? Well, for those of you who are really good at the Bible or have remember your Israelite history well, you'll remember that in 2 Kings chapter one, there is a Philistine God named Baal Zebub. Very similar. So let's, let me backtrack for a second. We read the Bible in English. The New Testament was given to us in Greek. We understood Jesus probably wasn't walking around Palestine speaking Greek. He was probably speaking Aramaic. 
And when he was reading the Bible, he was reading that in Hebrew, the actual language of the Israelites. So in translation, words often get lost or misconstrued or something because you have different vowels and different consonants, right? But this name Beelzebul is one that is present in kind of all three, all three languages and texts. So, so in 2 Kings chapter one, uh, the king Ahaziah falls down, he gets really seriously hurt and he calls on this God, Baalzebub, to heal him. And Elijah confronts him and says, you should have asked God to help you. Sorry, out of luck, and the guy dies, all right? Well, later on, it's understood in New Testament times that Beelzebub, or Beelzebul was either the chief of demons or actually Satan himself. So when, when these guys say, this guy has a demon Beelzebul, it's, what they're saying is, this guy is, is governed by the prince of demons. The principality that is govern, governing Jesus is darker and more strong than whatever he put out of this guy, right? Does, does that make sense? So whether, whether Beelzebul was actually Satan or just the most significant of demons, Jesus here is being accused of being possessed by a demon which is just amazing. Jesus heals a man of a spiritual problem and he himself is accused of having a spiritual problem. Do you know what people with religious power often do when they feel threatened? Do you know what they do? They accuse the individual threatening their ego of having a spiritual problem. In our world, we have come to recognize a term called spiritual abuse for what happens to Jesus here. Jesus was being spiritually abused by the people who were in, spirit, in, in power over him, the people who were leading the synagogue. Jesus healed someone in their synagogue and they who had authority in the synagogue said to everybody, hey, you guys, this guy, Jesus, don't listen to him. Uh, he's actually got a worse demon than the demons that he just cast out, right? I don't know about you, but if I'm in this situation where I just heal this guy who's like been blind and mute and had demons, I'd be pretty ticked off at the religious leaders. I'd be pretty personally offended. Any of you out there get offended easily? I mean, this is something that would offend somebody who doesn't even get offended easily. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this is kind of offensive. But you know what's interesting? Jesus chooses not to be offended. Jesus doesn't shut down. He doesn't stop what he's called to do. He looks in the face of his accusers and he continues to relentlessly pursue the call of God on his life. And this is, this is not the main sermon today, but this might be the message for some of you today. Some of you spend a whole lot of your time worrying about what people think about you. Can you imagine how much ministry Jesus would not have done if he spent all of his time trying to make sure that his religious friends approved of his actions. Just think about all that he would not have done. You see, Jesus was not motivated by the approval of his religious friends, but by the approval of his father in heaven. That's a pretty significant point there. Jesus wasn't concerned primarily with the approval of others. He was, he was concerned with the approval of his father in heaven. And I think it's interesting. I think, God, I think God the father recognized this. You know, there's a couple points in the story 
where, where God looks down out of heaven and is like, hey, Jesus, I see you, man. I see you down there. I just want you and everybody to know I'm proud of you. This is what happens at the baptism, right? This is what happens at the transfiguration. Jesus or God says, hey, we've got Moses and Elijah here, the law and the prophets, but I want you to listen to my son. Listen to this guy. You know, as Jesus is running around and he's just getting beat up by the religious people, by the people in power of his day and age, he needs some support. And so God in heaven looks down through the clouds a couple of times in the text and just said, you get him, dude. You got it, Jesus. I'm here for you, buddy. I'm on the front row. You got it. And some of you need to know God's doing the same for you. Sometimes when you do the right thing, the people around you don't approve. This is another sermon that's not a part of the sermon that's not a part of the sermon. If Jesus, the son of God, desperately needed the approval of his father, how much more fathers do your children need your approval? felt a little caught out there. Thank you for that, whoever that was. Um, as a father, I, I recognize, I read this text and I realize how much gravity I have in the life of my children. They need my approval. They need my affirmation. They need my encouragement. Again, that's, we're now, we're, now we're in, sermon that's not the sermon land. So let's go back to Jesus. I want, you to, I want you to know something. Sometimes when you're doing something good, when you're doing the thing that God has called you to do, the people or institutions you're threatening or challenging are going to tell you that you have a problem. It's going to happen. It happened to Jesus. They might, go, they might not go so far as to say that you have a demon, but they might go so far as to tell you that you're misguided or out of your mind. but Jesus does not allow the naysayers to define his ministry. And I would say to you today, if your life in this season has been defined by the negativity of the naysayers, set your ear on the truth sayer. God wants to speak something to you. Don't let some wannabe religious egomaniac define the call of God on your life. No, let Jesus define your reality. All right? So instead of retreating in defense to the accusation that he has a demon, Jesus points out the stupidity of the accusation that he's driving out demons by demons, claiming that it would be counterproductive for Satan to drive out Satan if Satan's goal is to possess individuals, right? Uh, then Jesus turns and makes a statement that's very profound. As many people have written on this statement, he says that people will be forgiven for sins and blasphemes, blaspheme, blasphemy that they commit here on earth, but no one will be forgiven blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so the question that I am actually often asked is what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? In this passage, we have two spirits at work. 
We have the spirits, the demons that are inhabiting the man, that are possessing the man. And we have the spirit of the living God that is obviously in Jesus. We have these, these two spirits. It is the spirit of the living God who demonstrates his power in this story. Yet the religious people dismiss the work of God in front of them and say, oh, that's not the work of God. That's probably just another demon, you know. And this ought to be troubling to us religious people. Translation, blaspheming the Holy Spirit looks a lot like dismissing the work of God that is right in front of you. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit can be not accepting the gift of God to you, cannot be, can be not receiving a word of God to you, and can be dismissing a miracle of God that's happening right in front of you. Some of you are contemplating divorce right now and God came to you via your mother, via your brother, via your sister and spoke the words of God to you, do not leave. And you're, you've convinced yourself that they have a demon, that they're wrong, that, you're, that you've got the right idea. That, my friend, that's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. We have an insensitivity in our age to the black and white voice of the spirit of God in our lives. And so you know what we do? We change churches. We go somewhere else that will tickle our ears and tell us what we want to hear because we have a consumer market of church, right? Jesus does not paint a very promising picture of the judgment for people that are not willing to have their lives altered by the gospel. And it ought to trouble you and it ought to certainly, certainly troubles me. Furthermore, James says to me, those of us who teach are gonna be judged more strict, strictly. I try not to think about the judgment just so I can sleep, you know? Man. You might be blaspheming the Holy Spirit if you have an inability to see others' spiritual gifts. If like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, you are convinced of your own salvation and hold little regard for the goodness of those around you that you consider to be less holy or religious than yourself, you're probably blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit often looks like over-spiritualized spirituality. There, there are some of you that are going to say to me, or think, or just thinking right now, or even maybe have already checked out because I'm not giving you a strong definition of exactly what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And I think that part of, I've read a lot about the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit and some of, the, some of the problems that I have with blaspheming the Holy Spirit is that they turn into kind of dogmatic formulas of what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus is kicking against in this very story is religious dogma that keeps people from recognizing the truth of God in front of them. You know, oftentimes people ask the question, what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Just so that they can make sure in their own life, they're not doing it. They can kind of justify themselves in their head and just continue to live their life the way that they want to, you know? Um, I don't know that there's, 
exactly, particularly one thing that is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. At least as I read this story, it seems to me that blaspheming the Holy Spirit is a lifestyle. There are those that walk in the Spirit, that receive the Spirit, and there are those that blaspheme the Spirit. This is why, in my opinion, when Nicodemus comes to John and we get that lovely little verse that we sang the lovely little song out of this morning, God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only Son. What does Jesus say to Nicodemus? Does he say, you just gotta ask me into your heart? No, he doesn't. He says, you gotta be born again. And Nicodemus says, wait, I've gotta crawl back inside my mother's womb. He says, no, every day you've gotta be renewed. The spirit moves wherever it pleases like the wind. This is about walking with the spirit of God. The Christian life is not about a one and done. It's not a ticket, ticket of salvation system. Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is how you're able to test and see what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Part of the reason that I also think that Jesus isn't just talking about a kind of a one and done situation, scenario, hard definition, hard, fast definition of blasphemy is because of what Jesus says immediately following what he says about blasphemy of the spirit. Uh, he says, he says next that a tree is judged by its fruit. Did you catch that? That's a biological truth, but it's also a theological one. Sometimes in life, it's really hard to discern what is the spirit of God and what's not. I honestly kind of get annoyed at the people that at every turn of their life, the spirit, told them, the spirit told them to get a double cheeseburger at McDonald's. No, he didn't. You might be able to convince me that he told you to get a salad somewhere, but the double cheese, that's just you, man. Now, no, don't get me wrong. It's a good sandwich, but it's not good for you. You know what I'm saying? No, no offense to Jerry Lewis. I mean, they do a lot of good people. I'm just saying, you know what I'm saying? There are, there are, there are, there are, we have this over-spiritualized sense of spirituality that I think gets us into trouble. And the fact of the matter is walking in the spirit in this age is actually really difficult. It requires an a, a very acute focus on the things of God, trying to you know silence all the other voices. I mean, in some ways, following the spirit of God, not blaspheming, blaspheming the spirit of God has to look like blinders you know, on. Trying to, trying to track with what the spirit of God is, is saying and how, how the spirit of God is leading in life. And Jesus says in this passage next, he says, judge a tree by its fruit. Why would he say judge a tree by its fruit? Well, in this particular situation with the demoniac, he cast out a demon that the religious leaders couldn't cast out. And they just say to him, they say to all the other religious people, uh, 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 you know what? He's got a demon. And Jesus is like, you know what? Say whatever you want to say. You judge a tree by its fruit. Let's just, let's just look at the, let's, let's look at my body of work here. Okay. What's the fruit of Jesus's life? He lived a life of righteousness and integrity. He lived a life of healing. He lived a life of teaching of goodness. He embraced children. He cared for widows. He called the marginalized to be his disciples. Talk about fruit of a life, right? I get concerned sometimes in the church. You know, a lot of times I feel like in the church, Jesus's command not to judge has become our excuse to not be discerning. 
We're like, oh, I'm, you know, Jesus said don't judge. I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna judge that person's life. I'm not gonna even think about the fruit in their life. Well, Paul says the discerning person, the spiritual person makes, decision, makes judgments about all things. I'm telling you, if you're about to get married, you should, look, you should judge the fruit of that person's life before you wed yourself to them for the rest of your life, you know? I mean, there are times in life when it's actually good to be judgmental, you know? And Jesus says, judge a tree by its fruit, right? And in this story, you know, where Jesus, where Jesus could take offense, he, recognize, he recognizes there's not going to be any, any good that comes from winning an intellectual argument. And so he just says, listen, you judge a tree by its fruit. And there may be some of you sitting here thinking to yourself, man, I don't know if I'm walking in the spirit or blaspheming the spirit. I don't even know what fruit to look for. The apostle Paul, very conveniently in the fifth chapter of his book to the Galatians, gives us a great place to start if you're wondering whether or not your life is producing the fruit of the spirit. He says the fruit of the spirit is love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness, it's gentleness, and it's self-control, right? Religious people, are our lives producing these things in abundance? Are we at peace in our relationships with our family? Are we people that ooze joy in the world? Are we the people that people want to be around? Are we faithful? Faithfulness is a value that the older I get, the more I admire somebody that's just faithful. I feel like we've decreased the value of faithfulness in our culture. Paul lifts it up here as a fruit of the spirit. You know, there's something really spiritually profound about a person that gives their life to another person for a lifetime, or a person that gives their life to a particular mission for a lifetime. Oftentimes that's evidence that someone's not blaspheming the spirit of God in their life, but that they're following the spirit. You know, so, so, so we're, we're working through these, these texts of Jesus and I, and I told you today, I don't, I don't know that I necessarily have a, have a point or an end. I hope that somewhere in the story, you've maybe grabbed onto something or something has been compelling to you or maybe the spirit of God has nudged you and said, hey, that's, you know, that's, that's for me. But I, I, do, I do wanna say something about Christianity before we go. Some of you may know this, I teach a um, religion class at the University of Dayton. And a term that I teach my religion students, my freshman religious students at the beginning of class is this term, the status quo. It's actually in our bumper for this series. Do you know what the status quo is? What's the status quo? Things that, things that are, things that just stay the same. The status quo is the way that things are. It's just the way things are, you know? That's just the way things are. You know, we're just trying to keep things the way that they are. Uh, the, the not very Christian philosopher Machiavelli said that no one has a greater enemy than the individual who would upset the status quo. Jesus upset the religious status quo of his day. 
My favorite philosopher was the 19th century philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who was very confused and troubled by the religious situation in Denmark in his day because he himself read the words of Jesus, but he was a part of a church that was indifferent to the poor and the marginalized, that was only concerned with maintaining their own economic status quo in the world. And so he put out some writings about, about Jesus. And he said, you know, Jesus is actually an offensive figure because when Jesus calls us, he calls us to join him in his abasedness, lowliness. Jesus was the one who was scorned and rejected by all peoples. And Kierkegaard said to the religious establishment, you know, we're a church that represents the high class, but we're not, we're not following Jesus in a real sincere existential way. He was understood to be an existentialist. You know what the church in Denmark did? They burned his books and made it illegal to read his stuff. Why? Because he upset the status quo. If you go through the, if we go through this entire, you know, series of going through teachings of Jesus and your status quo is not upset, even to the smallest degree, one of two things is happening. Either you've arrived or you're completely missing it. And the first one is impossible. If I go through this entire, this entire season of our church life and I read these words of Jesus and I'm not compelled or convicted in any way, I might be guilty of blaspheming the spirit of God. I had a really good conversation at the end of last service and I wanna, I wanna say something very clearly to all of you. Um, I do, although I don't like some of the ancients attribute everything in life to demonic or satanic activity, I do think that one of the greatest lies of the enemy is to try to keep us in our past to make us feel like we have committed an unpardonable sin. And if you're sitting here thinking to yourself, I am damned because I, in my life, the Holy Spirit told me to do something and I know that I refuse to do it and there's no hope for me. That's a lie of the devil, okay? I want you to know that Jesus, Jesus is a God of today, and tomorrow and the future. He doesn't live in the past. I think Jesus even says, God's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Maybe today is the day that you confess like, like David who trespassed against the spirit of God. And what does David pray after he trespasses against the spirit of God? He prays, God, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That is my prayer for my life. God, take not your spirit from me. I wonder if you would stand with me. We have a few minutes. If you'd want to come and pray today at the altar, if you can feel compelled to respond to the voice of God in your life, I wanna just invite you now. I wanna invite all of you as Paul invites the church when they gather together to examine yourself. 
These words of Jesus ought to, ought to compel us to self-examination, to reformation. Lord Jesus, we need, we need to hear from you. We need your voice. Think of the prayer that you prayed for your disciples in John, that God would sanctify us by the truth, which was your word. And that's my prayer for us in 2021 at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene, that you would sanctify us by the truth. Your word is the truth. Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to be discerning. Help us to know what it is to follow your voice. Help us not to blaspheme your spirit in these days. And may our lives produce fruit, good fruit in this world. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, who is the truth. Amen. My prayer for you this week as you go is that you would be able to discern what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God bless you. Go in peace today. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, visit limacommunitychurch.com.